everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 266, 10-Minute Tirades, recorded December 13th, 2016, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where geeks rant. That's it, right here. Don't look at Google. It's right here. It's the only place. Um, and tonight- Would we lie to you? <laughs> my name is Mark. Sometimes- as in every week when I say it, known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel. And joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Aussie-geneer. I'm going with that. Um, wake him. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen. Aussie-geneer. So, wait, way to go with the word right there, Mark. <laughs> you sure didn't mean sausage-engineer. No, well, let's, let's not go there. Oh, Okay. So tonight is a special uh, thing. We're coming to you from the past. Um, I, I guess technically. Hello, future. I guess technically all of our shows do that because we record and then we release. But this one is even more so. Uh, you are listening to this in the future. What's the world like in 2017? Um, we recorded this December 13th. Uh, on a Tuesday rather than a regular Sunday, because we will not be recording on the first, which would be the the Sunday that we're due to record. So this you'll hear this on the on the fourth. So we're uh, two and a half weeks out. So anything that we don't talk about news wise, that's why. <clears throat> but also, we're not going to talk about anything news. Uh, this we had this the this wild idea that came up uh, when we were trying to decide what we were going to do for our year in our pre release uh, pre recorded shows. And so here's the, th- the thing we've come up. It's kind of a, a debate-style format. Um, here are the rules. Each of us is going to get 10 minutes to, do- to rant about something that happened in 2016. This is sort of our year-end review podcast, but it's a rant. Um, we have each picked our own things. Prior to starting the recording, we didn't know what the other was going to do. There are no notes in that we're sharing. Uh, so each of us will have 10 minutes. I'm going to start and just 10 minutes of uninterrupted foaming at the mouth. Then we'll, there will be a 10 minute uh, rebuttal slash comment period where all three of us can comment. And then uh, Miles will go next and then Seth will go next. So we'll see what happens. As I said before we started, it's either going to be a, a, a miraculous or a train wreck. Either way, it's sure to be a show. So without further ado, here is my rant on the minimum wage. This has been a. This was a big topic this year during the election cycle, and uh, you know, even the uh, the uh, millennial. What did I call them? Scumbags. I think that's what I was uh, uh, pegged as calling them. Uh, one bags. of the things they were the complaining about. So the minimum wage has been around. You know, obviously all of my life. Um, but you know, I uh, I come from uh, a conservative mindset. We've talked about that many times before. But unlike a lot of people <clears throat> who um, come by conservatism by trying to conserve what they have. You know, uh, the rich people who 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 have money trying to keep their money. I come from a, a an incredibly poor background, uh, and I was you know one of those guys aspiring to make minimum wage at one point in my life. So I have a view of it you know from the bottom up, uh, and so I'm going to talk about it like that. You, I may sound like a Republican fat cat to you, um, which you know fine, but I'm a Republican fat cat that started out you know on welfare in the projects. So um, take that as it is. But a little history. Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought the minimum wage to the U.S. It was first done, I believe, in Denmark. Uh, But he brought it to the U.S. in 1938, uh, trying to recover from the Great Depression. And at the time, it was 25 cents an hour, which adjusted for inflation is roughly $4 an hour 
for today. So um, those who say that uh, minimum wage has not kept pace with inflation are incorrect. We have actually doubled the minimum wage when you account for uh, inflation. And the minimum wage right now is seven twenty-five. I think it is seven seventy-five. Somewhere it's somewhere under eight dollars. So if we were just keeping pace with inflation, nothing else, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, minimum wage would be right around four dollars an hour today. So we're doubly overpaying our people just if you use the phrase "keeping up with inflation." So all you people right now who use the term "living wage." Uh, and talk about how uh, minimum wage has not kept up with inflation, you're just simply got no leg to stand on. We have doubled the rate of inflation since its inception in 1938. Um, who is on minimum wage? According to the Bureau of Labor, Labor Statistics, so this is a, a bipartisan, uh, if not nonpartisan, organization, and they put these numbers together based on the uh, the most recent census data as of about uh, 2014. I couldn't get any more recent data than that. But less than 5% of the population of the United States make the minimum wage. 50% of that 5% of wage earners are under 25 years old. So, uh, and and that's one of the things that the uh, the conservatives like to point out is that it's all kids. One of the things that the liberals like to point out is that the average wage of a minimum wage or uh, excuse me, average age of a minimum wage earner is 35 years old. So if half of them are under 25 and the average is over 85, the math tells you that there's a whole lot of old people making minimum wage. Walmart greeters, anyone? Those are the two segments of our society that make minimum wage, the very young and the very old. The old people supplementing their retirement the young people um, who just don't have any skills yet and are just getting started. Uh, the numbers bear this out. This is not a political thing. This is this is what the 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 the, the federal government's uh, numbers tell us. So when people talk about the you know mother of four trying to make ends meet on minimum wage, they're talking about less than 0.15 percent of the American population. Do they exist? Absolutely. Are they a margin of error? Absolutely. I mean, it just it's just not a, uh, a a number worth talking about. And if you're one of those people, of course, you're worth talking about. But um, they're so far outside the bell curve to not even make the chart. So when you talk about raising the minimum wage, you're actually talking about affecting um, less than 5% of the population. Uh, and so if you're only affecting less than 5% of the population, you know, what what good are you going to do really? All right, so moving on. Um, some estimates say that by raising the minimum wage, uh, you'll lift 900,000 people out of poverty. If you, uh, This is a, a, uh, um, a Democrat study that, uh, that they put out uh, in 2012, I think it was, that uh, they said that if you raise the minimum wage to $10.10 an hour, um, that you would raise 900,000 people out of poverty. If you're one of those 900,000 people, that's great. That's great for you. But with a U.S. population of about 316 million, you're talking 0.03% of the population will be significantly affected. And though that 0.03% will be raised from borderline in poverty to borderline out of poverty. So that's it's a fine milestone to say lift them out of poverty. But realistically, what you're doing is um, moving the needle a very small amount. And that makes the assumption 
Oh, you know what? I forgot to start my timer. Um, I don't know how long I've been going. So, oops. Give I'm going to give it three minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to set a timer now for seven minutes and start again. I, I had one job. Start the timer. And I didn't do it. Okay. Uh, so, uh, that those numbers raising people out of, of poverty make an assumption that, that anybody who's even had basic high school economics can tell you is an invalid assumption. That is based on the assumption that nothing else changes. That if you give 5% of the population uh, a raise of 50%, nothing else changes. No prices go up. No jobs are lost. Um, if everything stays exactly the same, then 0.3% of the population benefit. You know. Um, Five percent benefit point three are are lifted out of poverty. So, all those people out there beating the drum that we as a developed society owe this to our populace. Uh, that's uh, the you know that we need to raise these people out of poverty, and that a simple three dollar an hour, roughly fifty percent uh, wage increase uh, will do the trick. Um, it's just smoke and mirrors. The numbers don't back it up. Now, as I said earlier, if you're one of those numbers, it means a lot to you. <clears throat> I get that. But you can't run a government. You can't run a business. You can't run any enterprise on feelings, on feeling good. You have to have numbers. And the numbers don't bear out a minimum wage increase. It just doesn't serve any purpose. Uh, my personal philosophy is that the minimum wage should be zero. The, the minimum amount somebody can pay you for work should be nothing. And then you, do, you work for what you're worth. So in my own personal experience, it's been a long time since I made minimum wage, so much so that I don't even remember how much it was. Um, uh, I mean, how much it is now. It's been a long time, but there's a reason it's been a long time. I worked my way out of minimum wage. So you start with uh, a certain value to an employer. Even the McDonald's employees, and Seth can attest to this during his uh, 10-minute rebuttal, uh, the guy behind the counter... um, can work his way out of minimum wage pretty easily. If you show up on time, leave on time, and work half the time you're there, you stand out among many minimum wage earners. And so you you lift yourself out of, of minimum wage simply by working, by creating value. Work is where money comes from. That's something I try to teach my children. Where does money come from? Money comes from work. It doesn't come from mom and dad. It doesn't come from the government. It, it, well, even if it does come from the government, where do they get it? That's something that a lot of uh, our, our young liberal friends don't understand. When you talk about the government giving money to people, the government doesn't have any money. They don't go to work. They don't make money. 100% of the money that funnels through the government comes from the people, from me, from Miles, from Seth, from you if you're listening to this. That's, that's who FICA is and why they're taking half your paycheck every month. And if you want to raise uh, the minimum wage, now you're telling private enterprise, um, how much they have to value your work. Now, I, I'm, I tend to be optimistic about humanity, but I'm also a realist. I know that if you give uh, a 17-year-old high school senior $15 an hour to flip burgers, you're not going to get $15 worth an hour, uh, an hour of value out of him. You're just not. Um, you're probably not giving $7, $7 an hour worth of value out of him as it is. And if, he is, if you are, you've probably got him in line for, for an improvement, for an upgrade, for a raise. Um, if you want to make more money, work more. 
And there's two ways to work more. You can work more hours. Uh, you know, a lot of people look at that. I'm already working, you know, 40 hours a week uh, at minimum wage. Well, the numbers don't bear that up. Uh, 95% of minimum wage earners work uh, 35 hours a week or less. So those hardworking 40 hour a week minimum wage earners, again, they're so far off the bell curve, they don't even make the graph. Um, but if you're that person, the problem is you. Problem is not the system. Problem is not your employer. The problem is you. You settled for a minimum wage job working 40 hours. You either don't have the skills or the work ethic to do any better. I don't know which it is, and I'm not trying to say that you're a bad person, but I'm saying the minimum wage is not designed to raise a family on. It's not designed to, to live off of. It's certainly not designed to retire off of. It's a starting point. The minimum amount of money that you can be paid. And if you live your life, if you're 47 years old and still making the minimum a human being is allowed by law to pay you, you need to look in the mirror and see why. Seriously, if you're not worth more than the minimum that the law says you have to be made, you've made some bad choices in your life and you need to change them. You need to work harder. You need to work smarter. Go get an education. Go learn a skill. Go, you know, the, the, the guy who digs holes in my front yard to replace sewer pipes, pays his guys who dig uh, the holes more than minimum wage because he can't get minimum wage people to do it. There's work, but it's work. It may be backbreaking. It may be difficult, but it's work. And that's where money comes from. So stop trying to raise a family on a minimum wage. You shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be raising the minimum wage. We should be educating people on jobs that actually exist. How about taking uh, some of that government assistance money and instead of just handing it out uh, to you know anybody who says they can't find a job, how about creating a work program to teach them how to be welders and how to be masons and how to be uh, pipe fitters and, and train people for jobs that actually exist? Stop spending $400,000 to go to a liberal arts college to come out with a degree that nobody cares about. How about actually getting a job for, work, for uh, uh, getting skills for jobs that actually exist? And my final point, I've got uh, about a minute here. Don't settle for what the man offers. It's not the system keeping you down. It's not the man keeping you down. It's you keeping you down. Go su- don't, go hustle. And that's what I did. And that's why I'm, you know, where I am today, uh, uh, an upper middle class uh, white collar professional. It's not because um, I'm smarter than anybody else. It's not because I'm better than anybody else. It's because I was willing to work harder than the people around me. And where I work today, I'm the first one there. I'm off on the last one to leave and I work while I'm there. Because that's where that's how you get ahead in life. If you're still making minimum wage, it's not your fault. It's not the it's I mean it's not the system's fault. It's not the government's fault. It's your fault. I'm sorry to be mean, but that's just the way it is. It's your fault. That's it. I have twenty seconds left. I yield back the remainder of my time. Now, gentlemen, you have ten minutes to revise, rebut, and or extend my comments. Okay, Mark, I will start off, and I, I get to be the devil's advocate here. Um, you know, statistics don't lie, but all liars use statistics. The purpose of the government is to ensure the well-being of the governed. And when you have the people who control the positions, control the power, and control the jobs, you need the government to step in and make sure that they pay a living wage. You can look, I mean, I understand ancillary little stories here and there, don't tell the whole tale, but they do tell part of the tale. And as such, you need to be able to go to work and get a job. 
So, and be able to put food on the table. So I think there needs to be a minimum wage. I don't know what it needs to be, but there needs to be a minimum wage. So you used one of those, um, uh, uh, hot button terms for me living wage you know what a living wage is a living wage means you have food in your belly a roof over your uh head and that's it that's by definition a living wage in the u.s that's uh probably twenty dollars a day would be a living wage um you're not gonna have an iphone you're not gonna have internet access you're probably gonna have dirty clothes but you're alive that's a living wage the, we americans have defined living wage to be the you know the the, the middle class standard of living well, okay, there's like I say, there's some truth there, but let me go 7.25 times 40 times 4. That's a $1,160 before taxes. So you're going to lose a lot of that. So let's say you have $700 after taxes. Well, $700 doesn't get you much in the way of living. Um, right, but it does, month. it is enough to survive. Is it enough to put a roof over your head in most areas? Yeah, if you have several roommates. Well, okay, maybe. I I don't know. So I just think there needs, there has to be a social net. And I don't really like welfare. I like people working for it. And you could argue that the government set minimum wage is a form of government welfare. Because I understand. Look, I had, as a manager... There were people who weren't worth $2 an hour. And back in the early 2000s, when I was a manager, there were people working at McDonald's who were worth more than $10 an hour because of the work they did. So, but at the same token, you've got to, you've got to pay them something. So I don't know. Miles, what are your thoughts? Um, Minimum wage to me is a paid education that you don't get in college or in academia. Uh, because if you consider that the majority of, uh, say, under 25-year-old school leavers, uh, where do they go when they leave education and they want to go into the workforce? The vast majority of them end up going and working for small businesses. And small businesses don't care what degree you've got. They don't care what, how good you are at adding up numbers and calculating you know, algebra and all that stuff. They want to know what you can do for them, what you can do to bring in profit for that company that justifies the cost that they're going to pay you and that you know, you're going to generate more than you cost them. Because at the end of the day, you know, small businesses, well, two, one in four survive after two years. I mean, the statistics are really bad. So they've got to be very careful with their money. Um, so I understand minimum wage. It's an entry. It's an on-ramp into the workforce for somebody who leaves education and moves forward. And I agree 100% with your point that said, if you're on minimum wage, get off it. Like work your way out of minimum wage. And that's typically what most people do. Most people don't tend to stay with the first job they ever got when they left college. They, they move up the chain. And typically the second, third jobs are not minimum wage. If all they're doing is continuing to get minimum wage jobs all the time, then they, they've missed one of the key elements that probably isn't taught in education should be. And that's the concept of supply and demand. If you've got a skill which is in demand and people are willing to pay for it, then you'll get more money. If you don't, you won't. So go and get the skill that will get more money, period. It's that simple. So I, I, don't, I don't see minimum wage as – I see it just as a, a property to a greater career path issue that people won't embrace. But I think at the end of the day, from a 
uh, from a, a citizen's point of view, you are doing the greatest service to your country and to you by educating yourself out of minimum wage jobs right. and learning what we need and providing it. And so uh, to, to your point that you said earlier, Seth, about uh, uh, taxes take, eating up a lot of minimum wage, I would actually be perfectly fine with saying anybody who earns under uh, 20000 a year pays no income tax. That's a reasonable government assistance program, meaning government stays out of your pockets if you can't afford to pay your income tax. Those of, yeah, those no, of you who like tax the rich that, rich, that should make sense to you too. Yeah, I know this one was a this was a hard one to argue because I think we we're all pretty much on the same page on this one. So I mean, you know, it's just no point. Who wants to hear ten minutes of saying, "Yeah, you're right"? So yeah. tried to throw something out there for discussion. Well, we have we well, have just over four minutes left, and and a point I didn't get to make, uh, and so I'll use it in in this time here is uh, to lead into what Miles is going to say. Um, if you raise the minimum wage, um, you will displace minimum wage workers. I, I mean. The numbers just bear that out. Every time minimum wage has been raised, that has happened. Um, now, it hasn't done away with the minimum wage worker, but it has displaced minimum wage every time. But we live in a, an unprecedented age where a machine can do most of the jobs an unskilled worker can do. Uh, if you haven't yet, go look at the the video, Humans Need Not Apply. It's been around for a while. It's on YouTube. Um, and it makes the case very well that there's a certain level of, of capacity of people who will never be able to do a skilled job for whatever reason, education, work ethic, physical ability. And we're reaching the point where machines will be able to do all of those jobs. So the minimum wage job is going to cease to exist, not because of the government, not because of greedy uh, business types, but because machines are going to do all of the jobs that we used to pay people minimum wage to do. Yeah. And, and it's true that a lot of times whenever wages go up, People will cut the hours and hire more part-time people because they don't want to, you know, overtime at $7 an hour is, you know, 10 and a half overtime at $15 an hour is 22 and a half. So rather than have one person work 40, I'm going to have two people work 20 hours. And so that one person now has to go work two separate jobs to make what he was making before and to get the hours he was making before. And it, it, it just, it happens that way. I don't understand it, but work but just what you said people will figure out how to get by with less help because they don't want to pay as much money and yeah you're gonna make the the bar so high for entry that there aren't gonna be any entry-level jobs you know hey you can't get a job because you don't have experience well how can i get experience if nobody will hire me so It's not a coincidence that the last time minimum wage was raised, both Walmart and Home Depot started introducing self-checkouts. That's not a coincidence. Yep, that's very true. Yeah, Seth, you you hit it right there when you said, you know, you can't get a job without experience and you can't get experience without a job. That's why minimum wage jobs exist. It's an on-ramp to get you out of education and into the workforce, but it's not you're not meant to stop on the on-ramp, people. You're supposed to continue onto the freeway and get on your merry journey through life. You're not spent, supposed to just vacillate trying to get into that. Get into that and then move forward. You don't stop learning the day you start working. And we have 90 seconds. The, the, to follow uh, Miles' analogy, on-ramps are cr- critical. And you, you don't get to come out of the, the workforce at full speed. 
and that's what these people, these kids mainly, who want fifteen dollar minimum wage and a and a, a debt free education, they want to start at seventy miles an hour. They don't want to ramp up. They don't want a service road. Um, they want to jump in a Ferrari at, at full speed. That's just not how it works. It there's no way to make that work. Not only is it artificial, it it doesn't work. It creates it creates all kinds of accidents. Yep. 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 All right. So we finished that with a minute to spare. So, Miles, you now have 10 minutes beginning now. Okay. Um, I'm going to kind of follow on a little bit, but in a different direction. Um, And my rant is entitled Humanity as a Service. So this is um, my analysis of some recent experiences I had this year uh, dealing with – well, I'll, I'll, let me go through the whole thing. So I've written a whole bunch of notes. So I'm just going to kind of read out the preamble and then I'm going to go freeform on this. Um, when is it ever acceptable that humans give up the one true power they have, their minds and their problem-solving capability, to be told to act more like a computer by their employers and less like humans? But it seems in large organizations this is being mandated from on high down to the worker bees. And I believe it's intentional. I don't believe it's due to what we would normally identify as incompetence or the Dilbert zone. I think what's happening is that we're setting up a future where human workers will be replaced by robots and automation. And and as we, the customer to those companies, are being constantly trained for that future every day. Now, I found a couple of interesting articles that lead to this, and they're not recent. The one that I've uh, cited was actually two years old, and it's an article from Wired magazine, and I'll, I'll send a link here in the show notes so that people can read it if they're interested, but it's called The Robotification of Society is Coming. And it talks to the whole idea that we are trying to dilute our own ability as humans in favor of machines, and it's really starting predominantly in the workplace and in our ability as consumers to purchase products and services from organizations. So what my observation and my rant is really focusing on is how immature the transition is as we humans are being kind of having to either be displaced or work with the technology and the robots that Uh, working alongside us all the time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to now go a little freeform and tell you a little story about a recent experience I've had. And this is going to involve uh, mobile phone companies, which I'm sure uh, everyone's had one of these experiences. So I'm I'm hopeful that there's some, everyone can resonate with something similar to this. Um, The particular company I'm going to be talking about starts with the letter T. uh, And I think that's the only mobile phone company we have in the US that starts with the letter T. Um, this, I was a loyal customer for this company for approximately 12 years. Um, I liked their service. They were inexpensive. They gave me uh, coverage where I wasn't able to get it in other areas, and they supported GSM phones, which enabled me a, an easy way to buy you know, cheap phones and use their service. Uh, but little by little, year on year, the quality of service, particularly to my house, was being eroded to the point where it just literally I could not get a signal. Um, we live not too far away, but in the valley or a shadow of a mountain, and it just appeared that this company did not want to put cell phone towers in the area, so I was getting really crappy service. So I called them up a few years ago, maybe two two and a half years ago, and I complained that 
you know, over the course of the years that I've had them, it's just gotten exceedingly worse to the point where I literally cannot use their service anymore and I want to, you know, cancel. Um, they said to me, well, we've got this little product thing. It's like a repeater that we can put in your house and it amplifies the signal. So if you're in your house, this problem should go away. And of course, when you leave your house, you'll not be there and you'll be fine. And I said, well, look, I, you know, I don't really want to have to throw my phones out and get a whole bunch of new phones. So send me this thing you've got. And they did. And a week or so later, two boxes arrived. One was a repeater station. Another was a like a master. So I guess I think of it as a client server thing. Um, so I set it up and I connected it, followed the instructions, and it showed a pretty decent signal level and made it all work. And my phone maybe had a 10% quality improvement. That was about as good as it got. It was enough for me to use this for a couple of years. But as it happened, and as you know, historically was the case, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually, uh, earlier this year, I called them up and I said, look, I'm sorry, I'm done with this. I cannot, in good faith, pay you money every month for something I can't use. So... And I had prior to this, I'd gone over to another phone company that starts with a V and I'd signed up with those guys and all my problems went away. So it just so happened that, you know, one had towers in the area and one didn't. So uh, with that said, I, I cancelled. Now, I was not on a two-year plan at this point. I'd paid off my phones. I didn't owe them anybody anything. I had the right to cancel immediately. So they did cancel my account. But they said, well, you got these little boxes we sent you a couple of years ago. So what, are, what we're going to do is we're going to send you out a prepaid UPS label, and you're going to send those boxes back to us. I said, sure, no problem, send it on. Well, I get an email, and there's the label. So I print the label out, I get all the gear, and I put it in the box, and I take it down to the UPS store, and I hand it over the counter, and they give me the tracking number and all the details. Job done. I think, right, I'm done with that. Don't need to worry about anything. A couple of weeks go by. I get an email. We haven't received your stuff yet. Okay. Well, maybe it's just time. I'll give them another week or so. Another week or so goes by. Nothing. So I call them up. This is the first of five phone calls. Call them up. I sent this thing. I've got a tracking number. I went on UPS. I looked it up and it said it was delivered to your uh, depot, which is uh, in Texas. I can't remember exactly where, but anyway, it was in Texas. And it even told me the name of the shipping and receiving person who signed for it. His name was Robert S., and I, and I said, you know, so you've got it. You know, it's in your organization. I can't see what goes on behind your, you know, walls. So it's your problem now. Deal with it. Lady says, oh, okay, well, all right. Well, we'll take care of that. Okay. A week goes by. I get another email. We still haven't got your thing. I'm like, what? And then all of a sudden I start getting bills. A statement comes by, you know, it's $500. I'm like, what? what's this $500? Well, it's because you haven't returned your, oh, oh, here we go. So I'll call them up for number two. I get somebody on the phone who's, you know, all kind of hipster and everything, and they're telling me, oh, you don't worry about it. We got this covered. Yeah, we can see you. You know, we received it. Yes, we're looking at the same tracking details you've got. Absolutely, we agree. We've got it. Don't you worry about a thing. It's all taken care of. Two weeks go by. Same thing. Statement in the mail. You owe us 500 bucks. Call them back a third time. Exactly the same thing happened. Call them back a fourth time. and. This time I said, I need you to escalate this to a manager. So it goes up the chain to somebody else who's acting all hip and cool and everything. And lo and behold, 
says the same thing. Yes, we see we received it. It's not your problem. It's ours. We'll go ahead and do it. Okay, a week goes by. I get a collection agency letter. Where's this $500 you owe us? So I call them back for the fifth time. And at this point, I'm, you know, I'm sick and tired. I've invested so much time and energy in this whole thing. And what I'm getting told is, well, I'm sorry, sir, but our computers won't let us, you know, look this up. This is one of those, you know, out of the norm situations. And, and the problem is that because our computers send it to the collection agency, you have to deal with the collection agency. I'm like, the collection agency isn't your depot. You are. Now, what part of, of I'm not responsible about this could they not understand? But at some Two point, minutes. right, I'm not responsible anymore. So this is the essence of my problem. I was, you know, obviously furious with the whole situation. But, you know, you walk away and you sort of regroup and you look at it, kind of try and take a thousand foot view. And what I'm seeing here is a phenomenon that is not uncommon in government, in banks, in telephone companies, in large organizations. So what's actually happened is that they're hiring workers at probably a little more than minimum wage to solve problems, and they're not allowing them to be human beings anymore. They've taken away their ability, their tools to be able to listen to what is an obvious situation with a customer and deal with it, and to address it and give them the power to be able to make decisions. They're not able to do it. And what I see is this is an ongoing continuation of the customer being retrained that if it doesn't fit on the web page, if it doesn't, if there's not a number to press when you hit the telephone ACD system, if it's not on a voice recognition response system or you can't download our mobile app to deal with it, you're screwed. And I would absolutely say at this point in time in our humanity, we're screwed. <laughs> so unless this is solved by people allowing people to be people again, I don't see how we can ever recover from this. So that's my rant. Uh, I, you know, let's talk about it. Is there an answer to this? All right. You did it with 24 seconds left to spare. Oh, there so, we go. Nicely done. <laughs> Seth, I'll let you go first. Well, I don't know, Miles, because if we did with less automation, then we're going to have to have more people to man the phones at an increased minimum wage, thus raising the price. Because let's face it, the the C-level executives aren't going to take a pay cut. They aren't going to give up their gold-plated commodes or their cappuccino in the in their own private bathroom. So what's going to happen is your $50 monthly phone bill is going to become a $50 a week bill, and they're not going to invest any money in infrastructure. So you're right. We are screwed. The options are everything to be expensive because we pay people to do it or cheap, crappy service from automated uh, systems that don't do the job because the metrics that the people ask for aren't the metrics that tell you if they do a good job. They're only metrics that say these are the metrics we can pass. So these are the ones we're going to ask for on the um, on the surveys that are done. So you're right. We're screwed. Yay, America. Well, uh, Miles, you, you were so secretive. I'm not sure which company you were referring to, but I do know that another uh, popular wireless company in the U.S. called Verizon was recently handed uh, a multi-million dollar fine from the federal government for these improper business tactics. So while your point is that uh, the humans uh, are being dumbed down, I really think this was an intentional process 
created because some percentage of the people will just pay the bill collector. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I agree. Here's something that's also interesting. If you step away from it and you look at all of the companies that do this sort of thing, the one common th theme you'll find with these companies is they're very, very big. Um, you know, the old phrase, too big to fail, uh, kind of comes to mind. I mean, we're seeing it, we see it with government departments, the IRS, we see it with the phone companies, we see it with the big monolithic corporations. And it's easy to sit back and go, well, they're like that because they don't, you know, they're just dysfunctional and they don't want to work very hard and they're too big and nothing gets done. I actually believe you're right. I think they're, by, they're doing this by design. They don't want anything other than to make a lot of profit for their shareholders and servicing the customer well only works while the customer is continuously paying every month for something. And when the customer is no longer doing that, you almost feel like this is their way to try to get that last pound of flesh. And well, when you stop being sad. your customer, you start being their adversary. Yeah. And, and that's really how it works. Yeah, what's up with that? I mean, don't they want? I mean, it costs them so much money to get a new customer, and it costs them money to keep the new customer. Why would they want to make it difficult for me to want to become a customer in the future? I mean, I don't get that. Well, it's all about the metrics. If I offer a promotion to get new customers, then hey, we spent a million dollars and we netted a thousand customers that will produce $10 million in the end of three years. So I can see money invested equals return. That's a good bottom line. Shareholders like it. So that makes the share prices go up. So there's more money to spend on the stock buyback to make the prices go up so I can get my bonus and I can be screwing the people with my massive stock options. But if I invest a thousand dollars to quote unquote retain customers, there's no metrics that say I spent a thousand dollars and therefore 700 customers didn't leave. And of that thousand dollars, I'll make 2000 a month forever. You know, there, there's no metric to prove that you spent money to retain the customer. So they're not going to go that. That doesn't do anything. Let's just go new customers. And it's a gentleman's agreement between these large companies. Hey, We'll lose a thousand and y'all gain a thousand and y'all gain some and we'll just do round robin switching customers and that way everybody's happy. So you use the phrase, uh, Miles, too big to fail. I really think the issue is too big to think. Yeah. Um, is the, all organizations, no matter what the organization is, once it reaches a certain size, loses the capacity for rational thought as an entity. Um, and it, it just, it just, it, it's one of the reasons I have such a fundamental distrust of government. Because government has become this large beast of of multi many heads but few brains, um, and you know the uh, it's one of the reasons that I am beginning to back off of my great love of Google because they are exhibiting the same sort of thing. This engineer company, this brain driven company, is starting to exhibit the same behaviors of too big to think. Do you think it's a, a, a restraint on the employees? to not be allowed to think because they could potentially threaten upper management? If not upper management, you know, it's, it's the upset the apple cart. Um, I know, uh, you know, I've, I've recently had a lot of experience in the corporate world where I, I never did before. And uh, you mentioned the Dilbert principle. Dilbert makes a lot more sense to me now than it did in <laughs> 2005. Um, 
And I really think it's uh, there's a whole lot of just plain kingdom building, right? It, this guy is de- is defending his position, and Seth, it's the metrics. I, I can prove that I am worth my two hundred fifty thousand dollars salary because these people do these things. It doesn't matter how relevant these people are or how effective these things are. I can prove they're being done. Therefore, I can't be fired. And and the more of those people you stack up, the less anybody actually cares about the end user or the bottom line for that matter. Yeah. It's like, you know, whenever you go to places now, like I recently went and got my oil changed and they called me and called me. And finally I didn't realize who it was. And I answered the phone and uh, it was like, Oh, we just wanted to ask you some, some questions. And like, after the second question, I just went, Hey, look, I don't really answer these because quite honestly, I don't care. And the questions you ask have nothing to do with the quality of service I received they're only about metrics you chose that you can hit to make it look good to somebody else. And they did not have an answer for that because the fact <laughs> that their questions had nothing to do with my experience, but it had all to do with the fact that, hey, this person said yes to these five things. We did a great job. I was like, no, those, que- those questions are meaningless to me and I'm not going to answer because I don't care. And then, you know, I mean, they couldn't do anything to that, but it's, it's the thing of who writes, you know, it, this is kind of, it's almost a non sequitur, but America at a big business level is very anti-competition and anti-capitalism. Once you get to that high level, you write the rules and you write the regulations so nobody can come and challenge you on that playing field. And then you don't have to do anything. Because you're going to exist and you're going to, people are going to subscribe to your service. And so you're putting forth the least amount of effort to maintain your revenue and it shows to everybody. And the least amount of effort is often uh, either replacing a human with a machine or relegating a human to subservient to a machine, i.e. Miles point. The, uh, the intake and the, the, the person quote unquote, in charge of taking that device and clearing out the account is not a person, it's a machine. And that machine apparently is not answerable to, uh, to anybody. And so right. they, they can't do it. Nobody can fix it. And now you have to, you're going to be dragged into court eventually um, because you, you, it's on them for you to prove your negative. I, I went through the same thing with Comcast. And eventually I just told them, if I get another call from you, my next interaction with your company will be from my lawyer to you because I don't have the stuff you have acknowledged. I have recorded the, uh, the phone conversation where you have acknowledged you, you have the stuff I'm done. And that worked for me. That's interesting. So you had a very similar situation. Yeah. It was a cable box. I never owned is really what it was. They never sent me. I mean, they sent me a cable box that I didn't ask for. I, without opening it, sent it back. And then when I canceled my service, they were like, fine, give us the cable box. Uh, nope. <laughs> Not going to happen. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I had a similar experience with a, uh, with a computer company that. Um, one minute, Seth. Okay. I was just going to say, you know, I bugged them for three months 
to ship me out a replacement part because it was under warranty. And every time, oh, our system's down, our system's down, our system's down. And finally, they shipped it out to me. And a month later, they called and asked for the part back. And I said, my uh, system's down. I can't ship anything until <laughs> I upgrade my database. And uh, after, and then they never called me again. <laughs> so it was revenge and it was so fun. Oh, it was just, you know, they realized it was fun anyway. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> All right, moving on now. Without further ado, Seth, you may begin ranting now. All right. Well, technically, Obamacare didn't happen this year, but it was a big thing in the presidential election. So I wanted to talk about it, or as I like to call it, not Obamacare, but Obama crap. Because what we did with this program, we trusted our government, which, you know, blind trust in anything is stupid. And, but, you know, American people tend to be stupid sometimes. So it kind of works out well for that. And, you know, and it was touted how you can keep your doctor. That was a lie. Your premiums won't go up. Okay. They didn't go up for the first two years. And you know why they didn't go up for the first two years? Because that was the law. The government regulated the prices for the first two years. And now that the regulations are coming off, get ready, people, because it's going to hurt. And, you know, and it was called the Affordable Care Act. But come on, I could call my outhouse a gold mine. But trust me, you don't want what would come up out of that shaft. So just naming it something <laughs> to sound good to people is wrong. It is wrong. The system, you are forcing people to buy into a broken and busted healthcare and insurance solution. Where's the impetus to reform now? Why are they going to reform a system that's mandated people go into it or pay the tax? Call it what you want to. It's a tax for not having health care insurance, forcing you to either pay the government money or pay the insurance money and then go to the hospital and find out your premiums make something unaffordable. If you don't have money, sometimes they'll they'll go easy on you, or at least they used to before this crap was mandated. You could say you didn't have insurance and get a better price than if you did have insurance. But now that it's the law that you have insurance, you're just screwed anyway. And all of this stuff is coming with the fact that America can't afford to pay for the services it renders. Have you seen our national debt and our national deficit? I cannot exist as a person spending more money than I have consistently year in and year out. The burden of servicing that debt, the interest rate, makes it where I can't do anything but eat and pay my bills. I can't afford to do anything. And that's what we're coming to as a country. You know, one of the stats out there is how Obama has cut the deficit in half since he's been in office. But what they neglect to tell you was before he cut it in half, he first doubled it. So, and it was doubled with all of the crappy failed stimulus programs that stagnated the economy and kept the Great Recession lasting longer. All of this ties in to more government control and less freedom, less choices as you as an individual. You have less money to spend. Who cares if you make 10% more if your medical mandated costs jump 20%? You have less take-home pay with more money because you're spending more in taxes. You can call it a premium. It doesn't matter. You know, you can call crap caviar. It still sinks and you don't want to eat it. But the problem is 
nobody cared because we were getting quote unquote free health care by the government. We don't get free. And yes, if you don't make money, it gets subsidized. Well, where does that money come from? It comes from you are stealing money from your children to pay for your want of cheap insurance today. Who's going to reform this program that is broken when everyone has to buy into it? You know, now in addition to, I don't mind doctors making a lot of money because I want smart people to take care of me when I get sick if I choose to go there. But in addition to doctors and hospitals and healthcare companies making lots of money, you have now added an entirely new level of bureaucracy in insurance companies whose CEOs are going to make multi-million dollars and they're going to be stock options. And what is an insurance company's number one responsibility? It is to turn a profit. How do they turn a profit? By putting out less money than they take in. So you pay for insurance and then they deny your coverage and then you have to go through and it's a sheet mentality that fine, I'll just pay for it out of pocket because I'm tired of dealing with the insurance company. Please, Mr. Insurance Company, let me use some of the premiums I've already paid you to take care of this broken foot so I can get it healed properly and get back to work. No, that's not really covered. That wasn't a catastrophic incident. That was only a near catastrophic incident. And your coverage only called for super catastrophic incidents. If the both feet had been cut off, we would have paid for a wheelchair for one week. But as it is, that's not covered. So... Welcome America to the new reality we've created because we didn't take the time to learn about the Affordable Care Act. We had to pass it to find out what was in it. And what we're finding out is what was in it is bad news for the consumers. Hey, there are some people out there who don't have insurance. And I understand, you know, if you've had cancer and you want to go get insurance, it's going to be super expensive. And there needs to be some type of program for that. But forcing a tax on everybody else, I don't know if that's the way to go. So anyway, my rant is just kind of tied up with the burden on the taxpayer that is called Obamacare and the burden on the budget that it has exacerbated. Um, just way to go, America. Yay, team. How much time do I have left, Mark? You got four minutes. Dude, I, I don't know. Okay, I'll yield it for extra discussion. Because right. I'll probably get going off something y'all say. All right. Miles, you go. Uh, I'm going to give you the way it works in Australia, which I think is actually, I'm going to say it, it's better. Sorry. We got you on this one, America. Okay. So what happens is Australia implements a mandatory tax percentage. It started off as about 3%. Uh, I think it's more than that now. And what it does is it forces the government to be the provider of healthcare as at a last resort level, uh, but also at a basic level. So if you go to your doctor and you just want to get a check out, you know, check up to do preventative care or you got the flu or you need some antibiotics or whatever, um, you will pay a small copay for that, a uh, small deductible, but that's about it. The, the bill is... Uh, forced typically through to the government. I mean, there's many ways this works, but this is the most common one. And they would do what they call bulk billing. And the idea is that the uh, physician is expected to take a very large number of patients and bill very quickly in bulk to the government, and then they get their payment, and everyone gets a basic level of care. It's nothing special, but it's basic. If you have a motor vehicle accident, I actually went through this myself, 
Um, it, by law, the government will respond to your accident scene. You'll go into an A&E, a, a facility at a government-provided hospital. They will patch you up. It's better than probably frontline, you know, military medical care, but not much better. But they'll patch you up, and then where you go from there is dependent upon uh, a whole bunch of factors, including whether you have private coverage or whether you, you know, recover in their ward before they kick you out, probably earlier than they should. But this is the point: is you're not going to die, right? You're you're not going to. Well, you might die depending on what you what your injury is, but from the lack of care, they're not going to give up on you if your if your uh, life is at risk. But that's as far as it goes. Anything more than that, it's your responsibility. And so there's a private medical insurance industry that, that's built up to act as a sort of a shadow to the government-provided service. So when one finishes, the other one can pick up from there. Um, if you need to get a knee replacement, for example, that's considered elective surgery. And you could wait two to three years before you come up on a list to get that, pro that done if you want to get government coverage. So clearly somebody with a you know, hip or a knee replacement isn't going to like the Australian medical system. But if you have private insurance, you can just go and get it done. So what does that mean? Private insurance prices are kept low because they're only supplementary. You're forced as a mandatory level in tax to pay for a basic level of health. And the, the reality is life expectancy is higher than it is in the United States statistically. In addition to that, you have a much more um, healthier workforce. You should have more productive workers. I'm not sure if that always is the case, but if it's regarding health levels, it's probably not so much of an issue. And it does work. So now I'm coming from a libertarian point of view. So part of me, I've got this, you know, left right, left right brain scenario on my on one side. I'm socially liberal. On the other side, I'm fiscally conservative. But I think this is actually a fix that works. Maybe it's not perfect, but it's a damn sight better than what we've got right now here. Well, let me let me argue with that because it's not better than what we have here. It's exactly what we have here. Uh, an ambulance cannot refuse a call by law. They have to do it. They cannot. Uh, they can't ask the question. Do you have insurance by law? They have to fix you up. Then they they then take you to a, a hospital. A hospital cannot refuse an emergency patient by law. Can't do it. Can't ask you about insurance. They got to care for you. That basic level of care that you're talking about. Once they get you patched up, and same thing you just said. Then they can dump you and you're on your own. But um, we we have in the U.S. Uh, it, it, the a series of laws that. Uh, do everything you just said, and and it's on the government dime in just the same way that you said. Um, that these these people must be cared for. Uh, there are severe penalties, like penalties to the degree that they will shut down uh, a hospital if they dump a patient or refuse to accept a patient, uh, and it can be proven. Uh, so the we have exactly that system already. People just don't know it. I mean, there there are lots of poor people for whom the ER is their primary care. They go to the emergency room. And they sit in the in the room, and they can't be refused care. They have to have some level of care. Um, and you know the the knee replacement thing that in that case, if you don't have any any insurance, I don't know if there's a a plan or not. But um, that's where we start to differ. But in terms of emergency basic care, we're already there. We don't need to make any changes. We didn't need to make any changes. It was already yeah. there. there. There is one difference though. When you get patched up and you're released back out into the world. 
you aren't followed with a bill of $30,000 that will bankrupt you. In Australia, that's already been taken care of by the government. You don't have a cost factor associated with basic care, uh, level of health care. That's all taken care of. But here, if I go to an emergency room, I mean, I, my father-in-law went through this when he was traveling over here. He had to get uh, kidney surgery done, uh, emergency. They did exactly what you said. They admitted him. They took him in. They gave him a great quality of care. He, he was patched up and he was released out. And he had a $38,000 bill following him. Now, that, that would never have happened in right. Australia. In the U.S., it's now up to you to prove that you can't pay it. And then it's a write-off that the government pays for. So there's that extra step of you have to prove you can't pay for it. Right. Um, you know, but to, to Seth's point about uh, the, the Affordable Health Care Act, um, the, this is price fixing. There's no other way to describe it. Um, this is a single entity de- determining for other entities across uh, an entire industry how much something will cost. And if I did that, if I got together with other podcasters and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to set a fixed rate, I would go to prison for that because that's illegal. But when the president um, pushes through legislation and the Congress signs it, not only is it legal, it's illegal for me not to participate in their price fixing. Yeah. And one other point I totally forgot to bring up, and I, you know, how much money does the government give away in research grants to these corporations to develop drugs and vaccines and procedures that they then turn around and ream the citizens of the government who funded their research for. I think that's a problem that needs to be addressed. If people get private capital and develop something, then, hey, whatever you want to charge, fine, you did it yourself. But if there's public funding involved, the countries that gave you that public funding get, like, costs or some type of program. It's just another way where the people are paying for the research and then paying for the product. And I think that's wrong as well. Forgot that earlier. Sorry. Now, you're, you're, you're right because, I mean, we've got a healthcare industry that's out of control from a, from a cost fixing or a, no, that's not the right word, from a cost management perspective. They are out of control. If you, if you are a patient on a gurney in a surgical facility you can't say no to what's being offered to you. You can't. If you're, you know, recovering from surgery and you, you know, they're going to charge you $6,000 for aspirin, you can't say no. And that's wrong. If that was the case, if I had that sort of level of mandatory control over a customer and I was selling them, I don't know, motor vehicle services or whatever, I would be sued out of business. But in the case of healthcare, there's absolutely, I mean, they make the ultimate decision as to what they're going to do for you. You have no input to that situation whatsoever, at least while the procedure's happening. And at the end of the day, you're responsible to pay for it. That's not right. Yeah, the $800 mandatory oil change every 3,000 miles uh, is, you know, the equivalent there. You don't have a choice. You got to do it and you got to pay whatever we say you have to pay for it. Right, uh, right. You know, and the thing is, even though most people do this, you'll go to whatever store, if you're in the South, it's probably Walmart to buy your groceries. And you you have, you know how much it costs because it says right there, how much this costs, how much that costs, how much that costs. You don't load your cart and then go up to the cashier and the cashier says, oh, that'll be $1,700 for a package of crackers. You know, but yet go into a hospital and say, hey, I need to, I'm thinking about getting 
a kidney removed so I can sell it to pay for my child's college or whatever. How much will that cost? Uh, they won't be able to tell you that they won't give out their prices beforehand so that you can compare, you know, everybody keeps their stuff secret. So you could have these two medical providers right next to each other. One could be half the price of the other, but you're never going to know, Hey, kidney removal special this week, $800 off or whatever. You know, if the costs were upfront, if people were upfront with their costs, then that would do more to drive down the cost of anything. But because it's healthcare and it's secretive and you're not allowed to say anything, um, you know, in, unless you're an underage kid and make your parents pay for your abortion, but that's another rant to get started on. I think, you know, there's just so many problems that nobody wants to common sense address them. The issue, we don't need a law to address them. Let's bring some free market um, changes to bear. Give me a price list. Hey, if, um, if cotton swabs are going to be charged $50 for one, then I will go to a medical supply company and I will buy a sterilized package of a hundred for $2 and I will bring them and give them to the hospital and say, mark that off, you know? And it's just, it's so stupid the way we've allowed stuff to become. And the way we are locked out of everything but paying. There's just so many problems. Insurance is what caused this problem. Uh, Because nobody knows, like you said, nobody knows. Even the guy that you're asking at the hospital, they don't know because it depends on your contract. depends on your insurance. Um, uh, Insurance caused this because we're not paying for our own thing. And the solution is not more insurance. And that that was the government solution. Insurance, the, the concept of somebody, a third party payer, is what caused this. If I'm paying for my own care, I'm going to be more careful about it. And the solution that our government came up with was now we're requiring you to have a third party pay for it. I mean, that's, that's like asking a dingo to babysit your, your child. Yeah, we have two do, minutes. Miles. They do eat babies. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, all right. So what, what's wrong with the idea of a public option with private insurance? that's free market that you have the choice about. I mean, is there anything wrong with that? I can't, I can't see how that could be. Look, everyone's going to whine that the public option gives them crappy care. Yeah, but you don't die. If you want quality care, go back to what we've got right now and pay for it. Um, I mean, people like people uh, over the age of 65 who are on Medicare, and I've got lots of friends of mine that are in that, that demographic, they love their Medicare. Now, granted, the government doesn't because it's a huge obligation they've got on their books. But at the end of the day, that works. And and thankfully, you know, in your in your uh, latter years, you're not going to be burdened by this level of you know stupidity with insurance premiums like that. But why couldn't we do a a, a, a minimized version down that allows anybody to get anything that's life threatening and you're okay, you're covered, you're not going to die. So you don't have to worry about that. But look, you know, you want to get that hip replaced or whatever, you, uh, pony up. I mean, what's wrong with that? 30 seconds, Seth. Okay. I mean, fine. Make me pay, but then give me an option where if you didn't go to any medical services at all during the year, you get your premium back. Yeah, but then that's the problem is, though, what about the cancer patient that needs constant care? They need you to supplement them. That's why that's why our premiums are spun out of control on Obamacare. 
That that's that one it, part of why. But because yes, we, yeah. But we are part of a we, our citizenry is part of the greater good of of everybody, right? I mean, we're all trying to. If you see somebody on the streets falling over, you go and help them out. You pick them up, and this is no different. It's just that. In this particular case, you can't see the person you're helping. But, you know, I guarantee you're helping somebody not dying because you're being mandated to have to pay insurance. They raise the taxes for everybody across the board 5%. We'll never know what I have to say about this because time is up. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this, this is where the show ends. Uh, listener, I'm going to tell you, go to elementop.com, click the contact us button. Let us know what you thought. Was this a worthwhile experiment, uh, in podcasting? Um, I enjoyed doing it. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Um, let us know. We, we may do this again. Uh, we may say that was the failed experiment that will never happen. Um, I, I, let us know. And that's it. No, no. Okay. We do have to do a Seth link because he said this was super appropriate. So go Seth. All right, this um, website I found is called nationstates.net. So you can go through and figure out what kind of nation you like, what you want your core values to be or whatever. So like I, I created a federation. I named it Treelist. I'm a moralistic democracy. And my national motto is we'll get around to it someday. So, um, you know, and then it asks you for questions um, that basically – determine how you, you know, some politics, some economics, some um, civil rights type questions. And then it creates your country and gives you a starting thing. And then issues arise and it gives you options on how you want to address those issues. So if you choose, you know, if when you make some options, it causes some of your national stats to go up. It causes others of them to go down, you know, like, Hey, what's the deal with crime? Should we hire more police? Should we build more prisons or should we address the poor? Well, depending on what options you choose that affects your national, um, you know, statistics, gross, gross domestic product, um, national morale, all these kind of things. And, you know, really we all talked about, there's not necessarily a right answer, but if you like to, if you think you're somewhat of a, you know, a backseat sociologist, go in here, create you a country and start tackling some issues and then see what happens to your nation as you provide what the answers to those issues are. I thought it came across, it was something neat to do. Um, it seemed to tie in with the rants that we had. So nationstates.net, uh, the link will be in the show notes. I've just been clicking through here as you've been talking and, and, uh, it's very one of the questions. The world needs to rediscover its spirituality. Uh, strongly agree, disagree, agree, strongly agree. And I clicked agree because I believe that the world would be better off if they rediscovered uh, spirituality. And the result of that was no scientific advancement in my society. <laughs> it's a little bit heavy-handed, but uh, interesting. Well, I mean, you know, because, I mean, the fact of the matter is you're not going to have... You, there's not a hundred different outcomes or otherwise nothing would ever happen. So anyway, should marijuana be legal? Yes. No unemployment or no employment. Unemployment is way, uh, way up. <laughs> that's, that's the math that they do. I, I, it's interesting, honestly, in every way, but it also says something about the people who put this together. You can tell some of what they think by the way they build the metrics. Yeah. Have you, have you seen some of the names of some of these nations? They're hilarious. The Popsicle Pete Nation of Clench. 
the, the mysterious airship of King Carl. I mean, this is hilarious. Yeah, people make up their own names. So, like I say, I'm treeless. That's that's our name, and and it put me in the Pacific, in the North Pacific. So, uh, don't know if that would quite fit as a treeless thing, but anyway. Such is life. And like I say, you know, if you think you know the answer, get in here, determine how you want your nation to be. And you might have a political utopia or an authoritarian regime that would make Hitler drool. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it kind of ties in with our topics, doesn't it? So, sure. All right. That's it. That is the the last show of. 2016 and the first show of 2017 all at the same time um i think it was fun let me know what you think elementopi.com click the contact us button or dial 559 i am and leave us a message there uh, i hope you had an amazing um end of year whether you celebrate any particular holiday during that time or not i hope the winter solstice was pleasant um unless you're in the southern hemisphere in which case it was the summer solstice see you can't not be uh i hope that the last 12 months uh, 12 days of the calendar um that you observe was enjoyable um <laughs> unless you're and, unless you're a sadist then i hope you had a living hell <laughs> <laughs> no that's a masochist oh okay um, yeah. well i guess if you're a sadist maybe you i hope someone you, you knew somebody, was a living yeah. hell <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week live and in person. Uh, but that's it for this week of The Geek Rant. Geek Rant.